Hey, Brad. Hello. I'm gonna. I'm about to blow your mind. Okay. I love to have my mind blown. That's why I do this podcast. As a matter of fact, we should have called this mind blowers. I feel like that <laughs> might have gotten a different audience, though. Uh, it's too early on a Saturday for that. So, did you know that the Switch Pro controller has a blue light on it? What on the home button? Wait, no. Yeah, you, you modded that in. Nope, that's a factory standard. What? Can I hang on? Can you just monologue? I'm gonna go get mine. I'll be right yeah, back. Yeah. So I plugged in my Switch Pro controller the other day to charge it on my PC because I was playing Mario Golf in here on a stream. And when I went to pick up the Switch controller, I was shocked, shocked. I tell you, because I looked over at it and there was a blue ring of light around the home button on the right side of the Switch Pro controller. Apparently, so. I did a little research. I'll have to do this again when Brad gets. Oh, he's back. Thank goodness. Uh, I had to do a little bit of research to find out what's going on, but it's been there forever. I'm back. I, I heard I saw I told everybody <laughs> what's been there forever. The blue light, the switch, the light, the light has been there forever. Oops. Apparently, Ring Fit uses it on the Joy Cons if you set an alarm. So, like, if you set an alarm, there'll be a little blinky blue light on the front of your switch. Wait, an alarm in Ring Fit or an alarm on the switch itself? Because I know, didn't know the switch use, could do alarms. Uh, if you do an alarm in Ring Fit, that's like I want to work out at nine o'clock ah, every day. Okay, okay. And then when you go and look at the switch on your on your on your entertainment console, the little blue light will be on in the Joy-Con. Oh, the, the way the Joy-Cons have it too. The Joy-Cons have it too. What? Hang on, I gotta get my switch. Are you kidding? <laughs> no. Okay, fine. I'll resist, but. Uh, the battery is dead in my pro control. Well, I mean, so. That, so that's how I, I literally played Mario golf with some friends the other day on a stream and they were like, Hey, you need, I, I, I was like, I'm going to play with the pro controller. So I plugged it into my PC and as it was charging nothing. And then when it got to the end of the charge, the blue light came on. I was like, what, what the hell is this? Wait, I've never, I've charged this pro controller many times and then never oh. use it. I've never seen that blue light. What? Uh, apparently the 9.0 firmware for the switch enabled it. Oh, uh, you can turn it on. Maybe at some point steam controller support switched it on. That's oh. all I can figure. Well, I was just about to say, what do you think is going to happen when I plug this thing into my PC? It's going to, it's going to not turn on for a second. And it's going to turn on for like one second. And it's going to turn off until it's fully charged. Well, that's underwhelming. <laughs> I mean, I didn't tell you, I didn't say this was a good cold open. I just said it was, I had a cold <laughs> open. Wait, hang on. We're setting up pro controller windows. Windows apparently knows what a pro controller is. Yeah. Everybody's it's so weird that everybody talks to everybody now. Like, Hey, I plugged it. I hooked my PS five dual sense up to my phone the other day. And like everything works. The touchpad works, the click buttons at all the stuff that normally didn't work on iOS controller support now works. And like, it just, I, I was like, this is cool. This is very useful. I can't say that everybody talks to everybody because I don't know if you saw that Sony put out a Linux driver for all of their controllers, but still has yet to release a Windows one. Wait, no, there's a Windows one that comes when you install the remote uh, connection utility. That remote play on the from the PS4 app only works if you have a dual dual shock or dual sense, I believe. Right. But I don't know that. They, I don't think they but it's not a full driver. I don't think it fully enables oh, everything. No. That the, that's what I'm saying is that like the, the well, they, they don't need to because Steam does that. Like, that's the whole point. Like the Steam controller mapping stuff that they did for the Steam controller, which we don't need to talk about the Steam controller. It's <laughs> look, it's, it's not it's not about what they need to do. It's about what's polite to do. <laughs> they wrote a Linux driver, but they didn't write a Windows driver. This is just you, you're saying it's a pointed decision. Look, if if there is any podcast on which we can discuss uh, passive aggressive driver release strategies, it's this one.
Welcome to Brad and Will Made a Tech Pod. I'm Will. I'm Brad, and I am happy to report that this Pro Controller is still doing nothing. Mission accomplished. Yep. Uh, so, hey, big news. Uh-huh. What's that? This is your birthday week. Wait, oh man, is that big? Does that qual- is that what qualifies as big news big these news. days? I don't know. So the festival of Brad starts now. I mean, you're older than me, so maybe you know better. But yeah, I feel like I've passed that point where you stop getting excited about your birthday and you start to dread it, or you just didn't marks another step on the path to wow. <laughs> What's, wow. I'm sorry. It's Saturday morning, man. I'm, I'm sorry. Happy I need weekend. more coffee for this. No, it's... <laughs> look, here's the thing. I was on your path for a long time, and then I had mm. a young child enter my life, yeah. and I'm going to go ahead and tell you, birthdays, Father's Day, Mother's Day. They're fun again. Valentine's Day, St. Patrick's Day. Uh-huh. Uh, Love the holiday. Flag Day. Mm-hmm. Like we celebrate them all. Yeah. We just get in there. We get up in there. Like sometimes it will be like, hey, you want some flag day cupcakes? I'm like, hell yeah, I want some flag day cupcakes. I mean, if you think about it, every day can be a holiday if you want it bad enough. Yes. Let me so see. Anyway. Hold on. Hang on. Well, we're doing it. Uh-huh. Okay. Are you going to look up and see what the days are? Oh, wow. Are there not actually enough to fill every single day on the calendar? I'm looking at this is this what? is according to timeanddate.com. Holidays. Yeah. And observances in the United States yep, of 2021, there, uh, there are, there are National gaps. Funnel Cake Day. There are gaps. That's the thing. You always hear about National Funnel Cake Day or, you know, there's something going on. It's like, that's eh, that National Ground Beef Day. Okay. Like something is always <laughs> also, <laughs> please let me know when it's National Ground Beef Day. I That is one that I will happily celebrate. I, wait, I have, I have an idea, Brad. This okay. is a good idea. Like uh-huh. I've been studying some podcast history and I realized that other like I'm not going to say which podcast, but other famous podcasts mm-hmm. made some big nationwide moves, campaigns, if you will, okay. to get placed in films such as DreamWorks Trolls oh. 2. Ooh, yes, I've heard such whisperings. And it, like, I think it got them noticed in really big places because they swung big. They went for the That's fences. Right. They're like, we want to be in Trolls 2. That's right. You got to take, you take your swing. You got to shoot your shot. Yeah. So like, my first thought was, Brad, we should try to get in Trolls 2, too. <laughs> Does that is, is is also known as Trolls Three? Is that what you're saying? No, I meant Trolls Two. Also, I guess I, I, I don't. They, like we should try to get into are Trolls you Two. S- suggesting we time travel to appear in a movie that already released Look. years ago. No, it, okay. You're thinking you're thinking in a 20th century way when okay. people released movies and then they uh, never changed. It's just a, like in a linear fashion. Yeah, I think we need to engage with the director <laughs> of Trolls Two okay. and establish that they need to do a director's cut. That features those other guys, but then also you and this. I, so, so, I think this okay. might be. A, I, I move beyond this idea now. So when 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 Trolls World Tour Special Edition comes out, and is what you're saying, they should. Are you saying we should replace uh, existing actors, or they should create new scenes with new characters for us to Look, appear in? I don't want to create strife. Like I said, I've moved beyond this idea now because I think that I think like because of the time travel aspect and or the probably not going to be a director's cut of uh-huh. Trolls Two World okay. Tour. Yeah, uh, I think. I think I have a better idea. I think we should try to get a day. Okay. I think we should try to get Brad and Will made a tech pod day or maybe just okay. sweatpants day. Okay. Oh, now we're talking. I think like, that's I, got, that's got universal appeal. I mean, like, maybe I do think that sweatpants has a bit of an image problem. Yeah. I think, right? I think that, I think that, I think that sweatpants imply a certain kind of no offense to any sweatpants wearers. And we have a Twitter account that has the word sweatpants. In I'm it, wearing though, it right now. Oh, well, I never wear sweatpants. I'm just going to say, Hey, I think that, that particular garment has a certain slovenly quality associated what? with it. I'm sorry to say that. 
I have nope. some that are fitted. They have like, pockets. I, uh, back pocket. listen, I am not passing judgment here. I'm just talking about what I think the cultural perception is. So, uh, but I, I do, I do agree with you. I think there it, is a cultural perception problem with sweatpants in I, America today. I, I think if you even drop the pants, I think like National Sweats Day. How about how about this? Let me. Let I don't want to. No, nobody wants Sweats Day, man. Here's, I should I should have been in marketing. Let's let's do a little let's do a little marketing exercise here. How about National Comfy Clothes Day? No, that's look. You, I think we have to make a definitive stand. Who doesn't think, like the word comfy? Doesn't that just like I'm even I'm getting a I'm getting a double thumbs up from the doorway here okay. at the at the suggestion of comfy clothes. <laughs> I do. But but here's the thing. Women's women's sweatpants went through this already. They mm-hmm. rebranded as yoga pants. OK. And sure. suddenly they're socially acceptable everywhere. Or, pants are worn or like leggings. That's such a yeah. that's a classy term. Yeah. Men don't have that. We like we have track pants, but they're not warm. They're mm-hmm. not cozy. They're they're functional and they're uh, you know, they're. They help you run faster, I think. It's true. Wear them to the track for all the running on the track that we do. I mean, look, I'm I'm all about the track pants, but I think I think we should like write a letter to the president, get a campaign, maybe get a change.org petition going. Okay. To find and find an empty day, maybe around the week of your birth. I don't know. Okay. okay. All right. We'll keep that in mind. uh, See if we can get a national designation of National Sweatpants Day. All right. I like where you're going with this. Um, right. Yeah. Before we get to the business at hand, I will just say that uh, in Googling for Trolls 2, I accidentally ended up on the Wikipedia page for the 1990 horror comedy film hey! Troll 2. <laughs> and if, if we can't get into Trolls 2, I would absolutely settle for Troll 2 as a consolation prize. So the funny thing about this is that the director of of Troll 2, the horror uh-huh. movie, not the not world tour. Claudio Fergasso. For Claudio Fergasso. He uh-huh. fit right in here. I feel like that. Uh, I don't think Walt Dorn, who directed Trolls World Tour, is going to take our calls. I'm, I, I'm afraid, Brad. Do you, think, do you think Claudio Fergasso might, though? If he's still alive, probably. He's still alive. He's not that old. Perfect. He's, he's uh, well, he's 70. That's, well, that's older than I was expecting. Um, anyway, I'll just real quick. I will say, according to timeanddate.com, there are a lot of openings. Well, there I, we go. I, I genuinely thought there had to be like some goofy holiday for every single day on the calendar. Let's um, well, this one actually looking at this, this is like pretty like widely observed ones. These are like all the serious ones. Well, I think all we have to do is get a proclamation, right? Yeah, I'm not seeing funnel cake day. Let me just see. What's the what what do you think the the process is for this? Like we call our representatives. They are not tracking food days here, I believe. So, oh, there might be actually more competition than I thought. That's a list of lies. Well, look, we can double up. I'll I'll share with funnel cake day. I don't care. Okay. Okay. Sweatpants day. Beef, beef day. Beef day stands alone, though. Look. <laughs> Wait, this is not the cold open. I don't have to pause. Uh, <laughs> we could just finish the, let's do the episode. <laughs> yeah, we should do the episode. I was going to say we should, we should, I, um, I want to talk about the steam deck a little bit. Cause I, I think it's oh. a really weird, good, neat. I don't know mm, if it's good, but okay. I think it's weird and interesting. And the choices they made are very interesting. And yeah, it's, it's like, it's, it's cool. Basically a little PC in like a $400 box. That's the reason it's cool. I have zero interest in playing handheld PC games, but as a like reasonably well-specced PC that can just hook up to a keyboard and a mouse and a monitor, it's pretty neat. As somebody who has a desktop PC set up in the living room for my daughter to play games on right Ooh. now, I'm very excited about it. Okay, I could see the appeal there. Yeah, um, but but yeah, it's a, it seems like a neat, weird thing. I don't know. We'll see. Yeah, uh, yeah maybe we should dig into it in the future. Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm curious what people think. So if you have thoughts, post people were talking about in the Discord some. Uh, it really but, has dominated discussion on our Discord, on the Next Lander Discord, on 
forums, Twitter. It sure is a hot topic, it seems. I'm well, kind of surprised. People really like playing handheld video games. So I love laying in bed playing video games. That's why I'm excited. Like, that's why this is an exciting product mm, for me. Okay. But like I do that with streaming right now in the house and that works well like 99% of the time. It's only stuff like Hades and and stuff that requires really precise timing that I can't play with the five milliseconds of lag. Interesting. Local I network. just I have a lot of nerve issues. I don't know if like it, I'm using very poorly ergonomicized devices. Is that a word? You got to get grips for your switch. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like I like I've I've tried playing switch in the in bed and my hands end up going numb after 10 minutes. Yeah. No, that's yeah. You got to get. um. I bought a thing at Target that was like $12 that clips onto the back of the Switch and mm. gives it like big knobbly Wii, Wii U console style grippy things. It, it's almost like having like controller prongs to grab onto. Now, hang on. Are you laying fully prone and holding it kind of above your head or are you propping no. up on pillows and like holding it in your lap? I prop up on a pillow. And okay. I, I kind of like, look, if I'm being honest, I'm I'm laying with it on my resting on my belly and then I'm just mm. looking down. It's like a built in. It's like I have a shelf TV tray. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Uh, But what's the real topic for today, Brad? My birth. No, not my birthday, but But uh, we did this uh, year. Yeah. When, when when is your birthday? Was it May? It's May. Yeah. May. May. Um, I want to know my kindergarten teacher and and my first pet's name now. Yeah. What is it? I'm not telling you that. Wait, do you actually use those? No. (laughs) I mean, I probably did at some point, but no. Anyway. Uh, so, uh, so, but we're celebrating the year of your birth today. Yeah. Yes. We did this. Uh, we did this for your, the, the week of your birthday. We went and looked at uh, a bunch of the tech and science and, and similar topics of the year you were born, which was 1975. Yes. Uh, and we thought we would do the same thing for me. I think this is a grand idea, which is 1979. People seem to like that episode. <laughs> I hope that, I hope that my perception is correct, that people were into that because it's really just a way to talk about a fun grab bag of historical stuff. Well, yeah, I was going to say, like, if people like this, please let us know. Either tweet at us or post on the Discord or whatever. Um, because, yeah. like, I look, it's not an infinite well because there's only a finite number of years. Well, but- it depends on how broad you want to make the term <clears throat> tech. Because, like, you know, the I would say that there were probably periods in the 1600s that had a lot of very interesting technology of the time. We could do, I think we could do, like, half centuries. Okay. Or sure. centuries, maybe. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I mean, you know, like I think it's pretty, pretty inarguable that the pace of technological progress has increased exponentially in the last century, right? So, like, so that means as we go back in time further, the the amount need, of time that we yeah. lump in with each other will increase yes. at a ex- reverse yes, the, exponential yes, scale. Yes, the the tech the the tech innovation density falls <laughs> off commensurate with your your movement backwards through time. Uh, so what? So uh, if you missed that episode, what we're going to do is kind of do quick hits on the things that we thought were interesting from a technology or, or culture standpoint. Yeah, anything that kind of fits in the like wheelhouse tech of the culture fits. Sure. I think. Yeah. yeah, from 1979, the year of Brad's birth. Happy birthday, yes. Brad! Thank you. Thank thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Celebrate! Yay. We all look. We should celebrate. I I look. I used to be one of. The, I used to be one of you guys. But mm-hmm. celebrate the small days. It's good. Right. Things. It's like sweatpants tech day. I have my at the at the urging of uh, at the urging of my lovely partner. I've gotten in the habit of taking my birthday off every year, which is good because I don't. Yeah, I never I never take enough time off. I took like almost zero time off last year, but I did do that. Look, you don't want to be one of those grumpy like I have. I had two grandfathers, as many people do. Some people have more. Mm-hmm. Uh, one was a grumpy guy who worked every day until he was no longer able to work. 
his okay. entire life. Okay. The other was real fun. We did like, he like he like had a bazillion hobbies. We went to flea markets together. He taught me Ooh. how to bowl, Ooh. all sorts of good stuff. We had now good times. Now that's a grandpa. I don't remember the work grandpa very much, except for him yelling at me for being, you know, like a weird nineties kid. Mm, sure. The other one spent a lot of good time with. So, yeah. you know, be like can the I, good grandpa, Brad. Can I ask? I don't, I don't want to. You want Get their mother's the, maiden names? No, 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 no. I don't want to. I don't want to delve too much into your family history. But uh, which one was married to the computer? Uh, the fun one. Okay, that checks out. That's what yeah. I. That's what I would have assumed. Yeah. Okay. Uh. So okay. So our first topic. Speaking <laughs> of computers and things that are now computer related and weren't at the time. Yeah. Brad, tell me about the Walkman. Yeah, I decided the reason it's at the top of this list is because it's the first thing that came up when I started searching for like <laughs> what was big in tech in 1979. It turns out that the release, the first release of the Sony Walkman is right up there. You, you Look, you can't say this. I just, we just put this in the order in which we found him. You got to say, well, we thought about this. We thought this one was really no, 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 more no, important, no, no, interesting no. Well, way to start. Blah, sorry, blah, blah. I, didn't, I didn't fully fill that in is that that's the order it naturally landed on here. But then we looked at this list again and we we're like, you know what? We should start with that. Like, there's. Yeah. There's a reason that that is at the top of this list. Yeah, it was. So prior to that time, there were so transistor radios were a thing in the 60s, which, mm. you know, transistor radios made the radio portable. So it was like a little pocket size thing that usually had a strap and an antenna that poked out by, by portable. You mean battery operated, battery even at that operated time? and you could carry it around. What yeah. were, gosh, this, this I, don't, I mean, I don't want to go off on a million tangents, but like what would what were batteries like in the 60s, like disposable batteries? Like were they, they were the same. They just not, not too not too different same sizes they just sometimes i think they were wrapped in paper or cellulose or something instead same, of metal same chemical composition generally probably not because they held dramatically less energy than the modern batteries so um that's probably a there's probably a whole episode there in the history of batteries because yeah. I, I mean that's an interesting but 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 yeah so the walkman added the cassette player right that's but as far as i could tell i tried to because i i didn't want to just you know crash in here and be like it was the first portable tape player ever because inevitably then you could find something else but as far as i could tell there was not a portable music device prior to this that lets you play recorded music it was just portable radios there may have been i feel like i feel like every time i feel like with this conversation with guardians of the galaxy or when x-men first class came out because the character in there what was it? X-Men first class. There's a movie that's days set in the days six- of future. Was it days of future past days of future past? Is that the probably. one with the time travel, not time travel, but the time for the flashbacks. It, I, I haven't seen a lot of the X-Men, the recent X-Men movies. It's the, that, yeah, that's the right choice. Um, <laughs> I might've seen that one though. There, yeah. What are you getting at? I think there's a character that listens a, to a, yeah, to a, a, a Walkman and the movie is set a few years before the Walkman exists. The, the, in the conversation around that, I believe that there was like a German, electronics company that made a portable cassette player. Yeah, it's possible. But it wasn't a mass market product. It was right. really expensive. Right. So one of the things I found in reading about the Walkman is that the prototype for it was derived from the Sony Pressman. Oh, yeah, was, the Pressman. Of course. <laughs> everybody's previous favorite portable. No, the Pressman was for journalists. It was a portable tape player meant for recording like interviews and stuff like that. Oh, that's uh, cool. And they kind of adapted that into... Um, I mean, obviously, the Walkman was huge from a technological standpoint and from a lifestyle standpoint, but I feel like the the kind of marketing blitz, the cultural institution that it became, like Walkman became like, I mean, you tell me, I was, I had one. It was the desired brand. All but the other things were garbage. The thing I was going to ask, though, and this is the, where my memory gets a little fuzzy, is like, did it, did the, did the term Walkman get into Xerox and Kleenex territory of just like, that's what people called their portable tape player, right? Like it was close, right? I think they were careful about it. Um, Sony was. Not to Sony, not Sony. I mean, culturally, right? Yeah, like, I, I think. 
it it, it was it was very well known at least it, it was like your mom calling your your sega master system and nintendo right kind of, yeah kind of the the thing for me there were two things for me that were notable one was that it was the first time that wearing headphones out in public like wearing headphones in public was weird <laughs> okay sure i could see it like like i when i got a walkman and i didn't get one until they came out with the waterproof ones ages for like years in the future um, and I, I, I had to like literally save money cause my parents were like, oh, we're not buying one of those damn things. And, uh, it was, it was absolutely fascinating because like I could listen to whatever music I wanted, listen to the radio, what I wanted when I went backpacking, I took it with me cause it was waterproof and I could listen to music at night. Like it was, it was, um, it was cool, but it was also like an isolating, it was, it was one of the first times I remember feeling alone in public. Sure. So yeah, which is always a strange feeling. Um, they were banned from my school for a long time from my high yeah, school. Yeah, I could see that. I could see yeah. that. So wait, did you have one of the sport ones? If you had a waterproof one, was it one of the like, you like day glow yellow and orange yep. and no wha- wacky, wacky looking ones? Walkman sport was like a big brand into its, unto itself. Oh, well, so it was walk. Yeah. Then they were bright, bright, like fire engine yellow. Right. Um, and, and they had different kinds of, uh, headphones. So they had like prototype earbuds, but they were still, there was an arch, that went over the top of your head like a normal pair of headphones, but they collapsed. They folded up into four. Oh, I remember those. Yeah. And they would get really small. But the instead of having speakers that sat on top of your ears, they just had these things that went into your ears. We didn't have a name for them at the point. Like we didn't call them ear po- earbuds because nobody had thought about that. But yeah. also probably terrible for your hearing. Well, not that I guess current earbuds are not much better. I was I mean, that was the that was the other thing I was. This is going to ruin your hearing. I mean, I do have constant tinnitus now. And I've lost mid range hearing, but yikes, yikes. Probably not connected. I had I had one of the classy kind of standard black ones, and I think it might have had a little LCD on the front. I forget, but it was my first tape player. I think I'm pretty sure. Like did my you own. Re- did you record music off the radio? Um, you remember doing that? Not so much off the radio. I'm trying to. I did do that some, but I think it was more from like. I might have duped some stuff from like a friend's CD player uh, or something. I don't. I did. You know, I think I caught some stuff off the radio here and there, but we, like. We would, we got really, my mom was like, here's how you do this. Look, you call the radio station and you're like, Hey, when are you going to play the song that you want to hear? And they say, we're going to play it at the three o'clock hour, sometime between three and three 30. Like, okay, thanks. And then you just sit there in front of the thing for 30 minutes. And every time the song ended, you'd press record and then you'd roll back because there was a foot counter on the, on the tape recorder. Okay. Then you'd roll back to know where to rewind if you didn't get the right song. Oh, okay. I was going to ask what you do with all the chaff, but if you were, you were, you just, you just keep rewinding over and over the same spot. So it makes the tape real bad. Eventually. I was going to say that, that wore out the tape pretty fast, right? Look, this wasn't, there, there wasn't longevity. Wasn't really a concern in this case. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was something I met. I, I was read about or that was pointed out in my reading about this was that it was also kind of, obviously the Walkman was not the only thing that brought this on, but it did kind of give rise to mixtape culture. Like it was the yeah. first first time people could really i mean maybe eight tracks had that to a degree i'm not sure you could record but, i think you could record eight tracks but i don't know that anybody did because i don't know that they sold blank eight tracks right because that's the thing like cassettes were so much more mass market that this was really yeah. the beginning of like people making their own mixes and and kind of cobbling stuff together that way it was just a huge thing um have you ever i i had never seen the original the very first walkman before is, the, is it the one with the orange puffs uh no it's like it's mostly blue and gray Oh. I got it. I got it. This the specific picture on Wikipedia is my favorite because it's so weathered, like whichever one they got a hold of is extremely used, which I really just that. do you see it? I'm looking right now. It I'm is so 
first of all, it looks like that uh, that Sharp X sixty eight K from Metal Gear Solid Five, like just that <laughs> that era of late seventies, early eighties Japanese industrial design and in, in consumer products, consumer electronics. It's like it's oh, so yeah. it's so it's so rugged and like faux industrial and. Again, this one in particular is very beat up looking. It just looks so awesome. I kind of want one. This even though is, zero use for it. This is the design that um, the the cassette player Transformer was based on, too. Oh, God. No, that's, pro- it's okay, sound that's probably it's, or, uh, or, uh, Soundwave. 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 Hang yeah. on, I got to look up Soundwave now. It's not exact, but I think it's like it's it definitely like the buttons where they are on the side. I want to compare. And, There's definitely commonality. Like the color scheme. All the sound wave pictures you find are, are him as a robot. I need to find. Oh, man. Sound wave I, I can't believe I never realized that. Deck. I need to compare. Well, let's see. I think I got sound wave before I got a Walkman. Probably. They're not. Oh, I, yeah, definitely. Absolutely. Um, well, they're, they're similar. They're definitely similar. Like the color scheme for sure. The color yeah. scheme is exactly the same. That weird slidey button on the bottom it's, for the uh, volume and yes, the bass. That slidey button is there, but it's specifically the mostly blue somewhat gray little accents in, in yellow. That is exactly the design of the yeah. first Walkman. Oh, it looks so awesome. Uh, I wonder, I wonder, hang on. I shouldn't do this. Don't do it. I'm just, well, you, you have to decide between before the episode goes up. If you're going to do this is the thing. What? You, like if the moment the episode goes up, the eBay situation will get dire. Um, well, I typed original Walkman into eBay and I have not, I'm not seeing anything. So it may not be a thing you can get. It's entirely possible. It would be the TPS-L2 is what you're looking for. What is it? TPS-L2. Let's see. Well, that is a common Google search. TPS-L2 for sale. Uh Uh-huh. Let's see. Here we go. I should really just... Mm. That looks counterfeit. I'm not sure about this. Look, you don't there's want to get a bootleg Walkman. That's that's the there's an, you know, that Iowa this stuff. This is eBay listing for 1995. Yeah, I don't know about this. You might have to go to a collector. I don't know about this. You might have to you, go. You might have to know somebody. There's a lot of service manuals online. Um, I should. It's a it's a pretty um, serviceable piece of equipment, I would guess. Uh, so the next thing, speaking of music. Yes. Oh, uh, sorry. Real quick. I mean, oh, we yeah. will transition into this, but um, the last thing I wanted to mention here with the Walkman was um, the Wikipedia page for it cites a marketing. I'm not sure if it's a textbook. It definitely it's it's kind of a, a marketing and academic study in marketing. Okay. Like, I don't know if it's actually out of curricula or not, but it very much reads as a like deep dive that argues that the Walkman was instrumental in introducing Japanese culture into the U.S. in the 80s. Oh, I can see that. Which like, you know, I like the, the 80s were when the, the enormous economic boom in Japan occurred. Like we talked about this a little bit before the episode. I think like you were a little older than me, but I think the 80s is probably when like Japanese consumer electronics became like the thing to get in the US. It's it's, it's when so prior to the 80s, there were some American manufacturers, but it was mostly like European was the kind of premier brands for electronic stuff is my understanding. And then the rise of Sony in the eighties ushered in an, the idea that, that stuff made in Japan was good. Right. Cause prior to that, it was kind of like you'd get an inexpensive Japanese calculators and stuff like that. Right. But transistor radios and calculators. Pretty sure. Much. Yeah. Like by the time I was old enough in the late eighties to care about brands of television, like Sony was the thing to get, like it was inarguable that you wanted Sony. 
Yeah, I mean, and they they the thing that they did is the thing that Apple has actually um, lifted, which is they never like you never there ne- there were never deals on Sony stuff. Sure, like sure. Sony yes. was always a premium <laughs> that, brand that continues to this day with their TVs yeah. and stuff for sure. I mean, yeah. you know, it's well documented how much um, Steve Jobs idolized the founder of Sony. Um, but anyway, like, and then the last thing I'll say is I, I there's a there's an ad for the original Walkman on the Wikipedia page that like the design of that ad looks like it's like straight out of Blade Runner or something. Yeah, those so, triangles are amazing. So it, it feels like a lot of things were informing a lot of other things design wise at that time, <laughs> for sure. Uh, I mean, it, it was a it was an interesting, yeah, interesting period. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, uh, Phillips demonstrated the compact disc to the press for the first time in 1979. I feel like if you're if you're less than like 30 years old, you're going, what's a cassette tape at this point? Sure. And then if you're less than what, 18. I mean, I feel like my daughter knows what a CD is, but only like theoretically. I don't know if she's ever seen one. Uh, 18 is probably a little old. Yeah, it's probably like very young children. I mean, I don't know. Anyway, compact discs. You know, it's a it's a disc that holds held 72 minutes of, of 70, digital 74. Thank you. Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, please. Oh, OK. <laughs> I put that in the notes here. It's in the notes. I knew that. No, I mean, I, I knew this this little factoid before and I had forgotten it. That that's how, that's literally how they arrived at the 74 minute length of the CD was <laughs> they wanted something that could accommodate the entirety of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. So do you think that they changed the bit rate of the. Of the audio, the, oh, of the Red Book standard to I fit know. that? I don't know. Like they wouldn't have changed the disc size, would they? I don't know. It's, I don't know. It's who knows what they started with first. I mean, uh, probably the legacy of the CD is that it established the disc size going forward. May, well, that's probably that's for sure, because DVDs are the same size, right? Yeah, everything's um, game I, discs, DVDs, I, Blu-rays. I would bet that the size of the disc was a lot more variable than the density of the information on the disc. I bet that I bet that like how the information was stored on the disc was a lot more subject to what they were capable of at the time. If that makes sense. Like, I bet I bet they knew how much density they could fit and the size was something that they could fiddle with, especially because I found in looking into this that apparently the Laserdisc had existed since 1972. Yeah, they're, they, Laserdisc has been around for a really long That's time. That's crazy to me because in my mind, Laserdisc came along in like the mid 90s or something as like, oh, wow, look at these giant CDs that hold movies now. Well, I, had, I, don't, I had no idea the Laserdisc design actually predated the CD by like a lot. Oh, well, yeah, because most of the Laserdiscs are, are analog. Right. So that's the whole thing I've never quite understood is the is the analog digital split. Like, I guess maybe it was just like coming to CDs first in my mind as a child. Like if it was on an optical disc, it was digital. And I never understood how analog video was being stored on a disc that used lasers. It's, it basically uses light instead of to do record groove type thing. I think right. I can't remember. I mean, that, to, that makes sense. Yeah. Like obviously, obviously records are analog, like, you know, light a, can, light can be measured in, in an analog fashion. Like it I, makes sense. But. but I think there's also digital laser disc formats that came on later. Like there's a, like laser disc is complicated. And that's what DVD was like. Obviously DVD was digital video. Yeah. Disc. yeah. That's literally what it stands for. But digital um, versatile disc. Brad, is that, I, is that actually, no, they, seen, I don't think, I don't know I, that they ever actually confirmed I, one I, way I've or the other. I've seen, Okay, Wikipedia says both for DVD. Yeah. Um, but I, I actually wrote a little question here in the reverse, which was, could CDs have been analog? Like, why did they have to be digital? I think that they digital was a... Did it store was a, more? Maybe it stored more? Well, huh. 
I would assume that you could fit more data into the same tracks okay, with that, digital. That's my question because if if analog if analog video on optical disc technology already existed, I don't see why it couldn't have just been analog audio. The reason I ask is because like you don't hear about it so much these days because everything is digital now. Like they lost that fight. But do you remember back in the day, like a lot of audiophiles, like music connoisseurs, were very up in arms about the rise of digital music. Records just sound better, man. I mean, it's beyond that. I mean, like just the analog digital yeah, no. argument, you know, it's just like the, the argument was like digital. And I guess it's true. Like digital recording is losing information, right? Well, I mean, because yeah, of the way, it, the, way it, the way it samples discreetly from, yeah, I from mean, the, the moment to moment, like you are technically losing information, even if the average person can't hear. But you would see people say like, oh, it sounds colder. It's not the real thing. I, I mean, I, I feel like some of that's probably people person to person buys because I don't think most people have hardware that'll let them hear the difference in that. Right. I, this I is very much like an audiophile argument. Yeah. But it, I mean, the, the, that was the conversation for a lot of the time. You never heard that with tape though. Cause it turns out the resolution of tapes pretty low. Yeah. The, the cassette tapes. Right. It was, it was analog, but it was so crappy that who cares? Yeah. Um, um and had a lot of noise for some reason. I don't, yes. I still don't understand that exactly. Yes. Yes. I, I, um, the last thing I'll say about CDs is that in my mind, they still feel like magic, even though they are basically obsolete technology now, because yeah, part of it, part of that is like, it's a thing I grew up with, right? Like CDs became big when I was, let's say eh, 10, 11 years old when Probably they 10, yeah, about that's 10, 11 years old when music CDs started getting big and then CD ROMs and game consoles that use CDs came along like a handful of years later. So I was right in that nostalgic sweet spot for them to feel cool. Yeah. But also the other thing is they were so vastly superior to all of the things they replaced. You could skip like dude, skipping. <laughs> anybody who did not grow up with records and cassette tapes. And then experience that transition to CD players, like the idea of hitting a button and going straight to the song instantly that you want. Fucking mind blowing. Shuffle. Shuffle. Like what? You could just say any, you don't have to, artist intent doesn't matter. Just listen to it however the random algorithm says. But also just like quality and storage capacity, right? Like yeah. the quality of the music, like that it sounded so much better than tapes. Like when you got games on CDs or even when like writable CDs came along, like you could store so much more than your average hard drive or floppy disk or whatever. Like, obviously, there were problems with like, you know, they were pretty slow. Scratches were a problem. Yeah, Scratches it was like 120 like, kilobits a second. It's, it's real slow. Like loading times were a big deal. That kind of sucked. But like the, the storage capacity and quality and stuff like that, like it was it was such a leap. Well, and the other big thing is that you, listening to it didn't degrade its quality. Like listening yes. to a record, listening to a cassette, you'd eventually wear them out. And they'd start, start sounding worse and worse and worse. Yeah. It didn't happen with a CD. Yeah. Um, the, the McDonald's Happy Meal debuted in 1979 for the price of $1. $1. $1. I, I debated whether we should try to get into like food supply chain stuff around this and how so, they could sell a child's meal for a dollar, et cetera, et cetera. That's a big subject. That's a big subject. That's like a whole episode. It, yeah. And also a dollar was worth a lot more in 1979, well, sure. it turns yeah. out. Um, but yeah, the happy meal when I was a kid, I remember, I remember when happy meals came out cause at first we were suspect of them and we went on a road trip and my parents were very excited at that point. Um, but you got a, a hamburger or a cheeseburger, a handful of fries and I think a small Coke or they had the orange high C that's not fizzy at McDonald's is back I, then. I see you, sir. Yeah. Um, orange drink. You just ask for orange. I want to see. Do, 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 do. I'm trying to I don't find. know if they had toys in them at the beginning that's, that's, either. That's what I'm looking for. I had that in front of me and I lost it. Uh, I don't know if the original one sold I with it. 
So around that time, uh, collectible glasses were very popular for, for mm. movies. Like when yes. Star Wars or Empire yes. Strikes Back came out, you would get glasses. Batman, McDonald's had these amazing embossed Batman, whichever one had Jim Carrey and and Arnold or and uh, no, it was the it was the Arnold and um, Mr. Freeze was that Mr. Forever? No, that Freeze was and, oh, no, that was and uh, Uma Thurman. Was that the George Clooney? That was one? forever. Yeah, the George Clooney one. Was, I, I think remember. that was Batman and Robin. Anyway, it was the one with with Arnold and Uma Thurman. Okay. That one, that one had amazing yes. like embossed glasses. Yes, they were great. I think like I think I used to have some like Return of the Jedi yeah. printed printed glasses that were amazing that are all gone. Yeah. Um, you know what? Uh, inflation calculator says a dollar nineteen seventy nine is equal to three seventy four today. It's about what a happy happy meal is like four fifty uh, four bucks. Let's see. McDonald's menu prices as of July 2021. Happy Meal. Wow. No, they're undercutting it. A four-piece chicken nuggets hack. Uh, excuse me, chicken McNuggets. Happy Meal. Yeah. 329. Oh, yeah. huh. it's more than that here. Ham- oh, sure. I guess it's by. I don't know yeah. what region this is by. This says 249 for the hamburger meal. It's probably like average across the entire state yeah, country or sure, wherever sure. this person lives. Sure. Uh, um. Yeah. Like other weird things that ended up having some real deep repercussions. Uh, the U.S. and China established full diplomatic relations. Mm. Apparently, up until this point, uh, everybody was still PO'd after the Korean War. Uh, okay. And we had had limited diplomatic relations. And uh, like uh, basically, you know, Nixon went to China. Yes. Right? Only, only Nixon could go to China. Only Nixon. Could go to China, apparently. I don't, I don't, I still only vaguely understand what that means. But the point is, uh, that opened up trade and all of the things that have driven the massive explosion of the Chinese economy and right. the the proliferation of China, Chinese manufacturing, right? Over like the last like 40, 50 years. Like, I'm that that event, arguably, I'm sure, led in large part to the current kind of import export dynamics that we have today, right? Without that, that wouldn't have happened, yes, right, right. Uh, it also has to do with the, the the one China policy in the U.S., which is a whole other thing that we probably don't need to get into. But multiple it, cans it, this, of worms. This decision left Taiwan, uh, the Republic of China, in a weird um, Republic of China. Um, ROC. I, I don't know a ton about 20th century Chinese history, but yes, I yeah. believe that's where the, the nationalists kind of fled to to Taiwan after, after, after the, the civil after the yeah. civil war. Yeah. So, um, um, but basically we don't recognize Taiwan as a country. The choice we made was we're not going to recognize uh, Taiwan as a country. And the choice China made was we're going to allow them to continue working with them. Right. They just can't recognize them as a country. Yeah. Do you have any insight into why Taiwan is such an epicenter of semiconductor fabrication? Like it's. I think it's just where people were doing that. Is, it's like is it, they were doing it, a lot of manufacturing of electronic stuff. And therefore it, 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 somebody there was like, Hey, we should build some fabs. This, this stuff's going to be important. Okay. And it's cause it's where TSMC is. Right. That's that's why I asked primarily, but also like, like a ton most, if not all of the motherboards, I think uh, motherboard companies and designers and so forth are based there. Like it's, it's well, a real so, hub. It's a real hub for PC building. I mean, like I'm sure it's just like, you know, random circumstance, the way that Silicon Valley came about and, and any like hub for a specific industry. I, I mean, that would be my guess. I don't know. We, we, I would be interested in digging into that in a future episode. I think that'd be a cool thing to find yeah, out. About. Like that. I mean, this is the stupid shit that I spend my time looking into on the weekends, but like I've, I've gone down the rabbit holes of looking into what happened to like a bit and DFI and some of those like 
Like they got bought, didn't they? No, they. I think they kind of dissolved. Like oh. some of the like DFI still exists, but they only make like industrial grade stuff now. Mm-hmm. They got out of the consumer market. Like, but some of those legendary old motherboard designers, manufacturers, and like you can. <laughs> I found <laughs> I found an old blog from like ten plus years ago of some person who went to the DFI office to try to figure out why they weren't making gaming motherboards anymore. Wow! And like interrogated the receptionist. <laughs> That that's not okay. Asking or wanted to see a company representative to find out what had happened. And like they they concluded that most of the gaming board designers had had jumped ship or gotten poached by other companies. Well, when Acer started, they poached a ton of people, is my understanding. Yeah. Scene drama. Yes. Anyway, um we got some nuclear uh Ooh, nuclear business. Good. Uh in 1979 was the year that the Three Mile Island incident, the most uh, most dangerous, most uh, released, most serious nuclear accident on the United States territory happened. I didn't know it was that early. I thought that was more mid 80s around the Chernobyl time. No, Chernobyl was like 86. Right. Uh, this was so this was, you know, relatively minor as these things go. Uh, there was a valve that got uh, that basically got stuck open and drained a lot of coolant from the reactor and uh, released you know nuclear reactors this is, uh, the the three mile island design is a high pressure nuclear reactor um which we don't really make any we don't really make nuclear reactors anymore but we really stopped making pressurized vessels after chernobyl and three mile island um and what happened was the closed loop where the irradiated water that actually touches the you know the 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 uranium in the reactor uh, the water mixed in with the open loop where the water goes, you know, through the steam turbines and all that stuff, and then gets sent out into the, into the atmosphere. Uh, and as a result, uh, there was a fair amount of radiation release. There was a, it, it's the normal, if you've watched the Chernobyl show on, on, on uh, uh, HBO, HBO. Thank you. It's, it's uh, less, it was a less serious chain of human errors that led to a less serious effect. Because at some point somebody was like, "Hey, this doesn't something's not right here," and they were like, "Oh, there's no water. shit. Half the half the reactor core is melted. We've got to turn this mm, off." Great. Did, did anybody so, die? Uh, nobody died. Okay. No is deaths. There... No the the ongoing uh, the state of Pennsylvania uh, did a multi year like twenty year study to see if there was an increase in cancer deaths. Nothing like that wow. was found. Really, I didn't know it was that uh, benign. Um, yeah, it was. It was a relative like. Look, there's no such thing as a good nuclear disaster. No, no, of course not. But it was pretty much the best case. Yeah. And and as a result, it led to a bunch of reform. So it was important in that regard. Yeah. Uh, the the next nuclear incident is the Vila incident. I just learned about this one the other day. Oh, yeah. And then I had never heard of it until you brought it up for this. So, you know, we had this nuclear non-proliferation treaty, which is basically everybody who had nukes at the time said, yo, nobody else can have nukes. It's a bad idea. Right. Also, we're say good. It, we say got it, this. Say it three times fast. Nuclear yeah. proliferation, nuclear proliferation, nuclear proliferation, nuclear proliferation. It's a nuclear lot. Prolifer- yeah, it's a lot of syllables. <laughs> Shit. Um, but there were countries that wanted to have nukes that didn't have nukes and they mm-hmm. started working together. So South Africa and Israel uh, allegedly. I guess it's never been verified. Okay. Well, let's do, let's tell the story the other way. Uh, we had satellites on orbit, uh, called, where is it? Here we go. Uh, called the, it's called the Vila satellite actually. So, 
uh, and it was set up to detect there's nuclear explosions released two distinct flashes. One's very short. And then several milliseconds later, there's another longer flash. And it's it's like there's no other source of this flash in the natural world. So if you see if you have a satellite that's pointed at half of the Earth and they see a flash like this, then then you're like, okay, pretty safe bet. Probably the nuclear explosion just happened above ground. So. The Vila satellite detected one of these flashes in the Prince Edward Islands south of South between South Africa and and Antarctica. And uh, then the official U.S. policy was basically. Yeah, nothing happened. Just a weird something weird happened there. I don't know. It's just, you know, unexplainable. Can't can't answer all these questions. It's unsolved mysteries. Mm -hmm. Um. Probably based on data from seismologists and uh, like undersea hydrophones and all that stuff, uh, probably was South Africa and Israel detonating a nuclear bomb above ground, um, doing a doing a bomb test of like a three kiloton bomb. Uh, but because we had just signed the nuclear non-proliferation treaty and we didn't want to have which included automatic sanctions for anybody that violated it who didn't already have a bomb, uh, we didn't. We just acted like nothing happened. Just trying to look the other way for <sighs> strategic geopolitical reasons. And That's very consistent in our principles. Yeah. What, 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 how would this ever bite us in the ass 40 years later? Yeah. Um, anyway, somebody wrote in, uh, we were talking about, uh, the ARPANET recently. Yeah. DARPA government classification, stuff like that. I, I wish I had written this down. Somebody wrote in talking about kind of standard declassification protocols. And I want to say it's 50 years unless there's a good reason. Otherwise, you're just going to say we're going to find out the true story behind the veal. Maybe it was aliens. That's right. You never know. You know, if, can, if it turns you, out that it's aliens, I want the day that they discovered that to be sweatpants. Can you say it was not aliens day. wearing sweatpants? No. You can't prove a negative, Brad. Everybody knows that. I know that. That was the joke. I know. Okay. I just didn't want people to think that we didn't know that. <laughs> okay. Sometimes I assume a lot about what people... I trust our audience a lot. Think we our audience, yes. Yes. But sometimes we're past the 30 minutes minute mark, so nobody outside of the audience will listen this far. We can say anything we want at this point. That's that's a good point. Yeah. Uh, sometimes you can't assume too much about what people think you do and don't know. Yes. Though, when you let's say are joking about something and they take you seriously. All right. Um a couple of extremely let's see, we talked about the Altair uh, 8080. Yeah. I'm sorry, it was the Altair 8800. 8800. I, I got that back. I'm staring at you got 18 numbers on way too right many, here. way too many products, you know, back when microprocessors and integrated circuits were just named after numbers and not, you know, they hadn't hired a marketing agency, not, yet. not catchy terms like Pentium and core Pentium means five. I like core. I think core is a good name or Pentium means center Pentium. I always thought was a little cheesy. I like also, Pentium. I not only did I not like the name very much, but I was also just incensed when they did it because I loved calling things 486 and stuff like well, it felt and, so tech and also the socket change around after just after the Pentium was that's, a you know that's yeah. actually that is a i think that is a legitimate point that it got harder to keep track of what was what after they started branding arbitrarily well yeah and and, and like they so for a while on the Pentium series they they stuck with the the open socket 7 architecture and then mm. they moved to the slots which they they didn't let anybody else use so yes Anyway, we uh, we won't dwell on these too much because we're not computer engineers. But the Intel the Intel eighty eighty eight, yeah, debuted in nineteen seventy nine, which became the basis for the very first IBM PC, which 
you know, became the basis for literally every PC ever. Goes without saying how influential that was. Um, and the, um, the Motorola 68000 also in 1979, which like right up there. Was that the Apple? The basis of the Macintosh. The, Macintosh. Uh, the Sega Genesis slash Mega Drive. Ooh. Amiga, Atari ST, like the 60, like a bunch of Japanese computers that didn't come like the, the again, the Sharp. Sharp. Yeah. X68K, as you might imagine, use a 68K. Um, European computers, like I said, I mean, like the, the 68000, especially if you keep up with things like the Mr. Scene, like it's everywhere. Like it's it was it's it's right up there with these early Intel chips and like the Xilog Z80 and stuff. It was like one of the main microprocessors that you see being recreated or emulated all over the place these days. It was huge. Well, and it, it, this is also interesting because it's from the time before uh, the time before DOS for the most like yes. IBM PC ran DOS, but it was before DOS was the monolithic. Yes. You know, it was the way you computed. It's ridiculous how much all this stuff overlaps because I, in reading about the CD yesterday, I saw Gary Kildall referenced. Oh, really? Because later in life, he started a company trying to put things like encyclopedias and government documents onto CD. Gary Kildall, a guy? No, because he actually died in 1994. Oh, bummer. Uh, of an accident. But uh, you might know him as the bearded co-host of the Computer Chronicles. What? Uh, you might also know him as the guy who was writing the operating system that IBM was using if before you, DOS. Yes. For MS-DOS. Like, wow. If you go on his Wikipedia page, there was like a very fateful meeting that he missed where IBM wanted to license his operating system for the PC. Mm, and like crap. Wow. And, and like the deal didn't come together. He was not present for the meeting that day. And so then they went and met with Microsoft instead. Man, that would haunt you. And like, it, like the, the Wikipedia page says that he literally, beca- like, he sold like two companies. Like, he was really wealthy. It's not like he wasn't successful. Yeah, but but but, the, but his Wikipedia page literally says like he like descended into alcoholism later in life. Oh man, like, largely because of what happened with Microsoft. I um, like. I can't imagine <clears throat> missing something. Like, wow. Yeah, that uh, would haunt you. Um. Also, apparently, from what I was reading, like Bill Gates was not particularly kind about that whole situation in, in at the at the time. And like, I, in I the mean, press, like in, his, in, his, in his statements to the press, like, yeah. uh, like apparently, like, according to the, what I read, like he was he was off handling other business stuff that day. And so he was not there for that meeting. Other company representatives were. But Bill Gates, like, went around in the press later saying, like, oh, yeah, he missed that meeting because he was on vacation or something like he was just like. Well, kind, kind of an ass about it. And the thing is, like IBM was a big deal because they did servers and mainframes and stuff like I mean, mainframes and and shared shared terminals yeah. and stuff like that. But like in the PC space, IBM before the PC wasn't huge. No, of course not. Right. Like there was no PC space. I think I think I think that it, it was also implied that Kildall thought that the PC, the IBM PC was not going to be that big a deal because they were not big in that market. Well, and they were going to be overpriced. It was right. the other thing. Everybody yeah. Knew, like. Yeah. Anyway, anyway, that, that was a huge tangent. But like you see the same names, the same concepts, the same tech popping up in overlapping spaces all over the place here. Small, um, small world. Um, speaking of small worlds, CompuServe launched to the year of your birth, Brad. So. Yes, as a consumer service, yes. But I was shocked to find out that CompuServe was actually founded in 1969. People probably know CompuServe now because it was in one of the early like nationwide ISPs or at least larger yeah. than local ISPs. Yeah, like I know our audience skews older, but I I do wonder are we in a spot where we'd actually just need to like define what CompuServe was? Like, like it was basically 
I even saw references to this in from press at the time that it was kind of described as one of the other big three besides America Online and Prodigy Delphi or Prodigy. Yeah. Um, the, the the thing about CompuServe, the thing about these. So at this point, these in the in the late late eighties, early nineties, I guess these services would kind of connect people to what were kind of like big BBSs. They were like large scale BBSs that then you could also access the internet on. Yes. Um, later, not not obviously in nineteen seventy nine, but uh, I I didn't understand this. What did people use this for? So uh, CompuServe was founded as a subsidiary of a company called Golden United Life Insurance. Oh, yeah. G-U-L-I, of course. Of course. Like, this is such a weird origin. Like, apparently they founded it partially to be kind of a, like, to provide computing services to their own company, the life insurance business. Yeah. Um, But then they also started expanding it into renting out computing time. This was, you know, back when computing, like, time sharing was a a thing. Yeah. Because you were just, you know, signing into mainframes or whatever. Um. They built that up as a business, as kind of a B2B service to rent out computer time to other businesses. And then from what I gathered reading about this, that network built up slowly across the country to the point that they then decided to roll out a consumer service in the evenings because all those computers were sitting there idle in the evening, not being used by businesses who were not operating at night. So you could get like a dumb terminal and hook it up to a modem and get timeshare on a, on one of these machines. That's basically what I gathered from this. Like, huh. like I didn't read too much into, you know, they're talking about a lot of PDP tens and teletype terminals and like that kind of old shit. Wow. Um, but I guess they, I want to say they called, they called the consumer service Micronet originally and they marketed it at Radio Shack, but it was so successful. They decided to just rebrand it as the actual name CompuServe. And then it kind of grew from there. There you go. Um, and then uh, they apparently were also the first one of those big national services to uh, offer any kind of e- internet access in the form of email in 1989, which is like pretty early. Yeah, that's why the copy, your CompuServe email address was always a big long string of numbers. Yes. It's just your user ID. I always thought of CompuServe. I never used it, but I, from what I read about it, I always thought of it as the like very techie, like not very user friendly one because of things like that. That that's that was my read as well. AOL well, was the straight yeah. to dial up shell accounts. Yeah, man, I, I very jealous. I wish I had been into that back then. But um, let's see. <laughs> I wanted I copied one thing from the Wikipedia page. I want to mention here. Yeah, they're talking about as they were building up that national network. They were headhunting executives to or recruiting to build that up. <laughs> they're talking about an executive they headhunted who left a company called Service Bureau Corporation. Oh, yeah, the SBC, which was a subsidiary of Control Data Corporation. <laughs> like, wow, computing company names from the 70s, 80s, and 80s are such nonsense mashups of words. Like you literally just pick two words. Well, but like if you named it today, a Control Data Corporation would be named Slavonis or something like that. That's right? fair. That's fair. I just I love how bulky and awkward and nonsensical I, these the control data corporation. I wish that this was like a 60s mashup, like a like a Kondaka, Kondako, sure. or something like that. Oh, right? well, don't, don't forget our friends from 1975, Chromemco. Yeah, Chromemco, who, who, never who, forget. The, you know, the hottest mixtape of 1975 that graced the album or the, the show art of your episode. Chromemco. Um, yeah. Uh, Bjorn Strostrup. Strostrup. Sure. Bjorn Strostrup. Yes, that's that's okay. Close enough. Started working on C plus plus. Yeah, which was seventy nine. I don't want to say it was the first object oriented programming language because it wasn't. There was other stuff before, but it was probably the first one that was like became, widely became, used became and is still used standard. today. Yeah, it became kind of standard. Yeah, 
Um, and and what that means is basically that um, prior to this, you didn't have the ability to inject other code into your applications. So there was no way to like include a header file and stuff like that in some in some cases with with just normal C is my understanding. You were just replicating every function. Every, yeah. every function piece of functionality every single time you wrote a program i assume there's a lot of copying and pasting but i don't know for sure i don't even know if could you copy and paste that functionality even copy exist? and paste existed in 1979 brad okay well i meant i meant before that i, I don't know maybe well I, before that's a that, good question if you're on a teletype terminal i don't know if that's actually a thing it's it's a it, this is we put this in a because both of us bombed out of cs classes in college um but but it it like this is this is this is one of the things that probably this is why we still teach C in college in schools in CS programs and stuff like that. Right, that would be my guess. Yeah, I didn't. I I I liked the programming. It was the math that washed me out of the CS degree. Um, I didn't really like the programming or the math. So really? it was easy. I mean, I I'm good at I I like I like physics math, but mm. the computer math was inscrutable to me because I didn't understand what was going. Like, in order for me to understand the math, I have to kind of understand what's going on on the other side. Sure, the back end. sure. I didn't love pointers when we got to pointers. I was like <laughs> dealing with memory management manually. Ooh, wow, was was not my favorite thing you don't really do that anymore it turns out no i know like i think most high level languages completely well especially interpreted languages have zero concept of that right yeah you just you have an infinite state machine basically you can do uh, whatever you want right but I, I don't know what like what we've got a ton of very skilled software developers on our discord like i should just go in there and ask them but i wonder how much manual memory management you're doing with like rust and go and stuff like that these days my guess is it depends on what your if you have really specific workloads, usually you have to do stuff that's more manual. Anyway, yeah. um, Pixar started yeah. as the graphics group at Lucasfilm. Yes. Or, yeah, I guess the well, let's see. The, I, I got this straight off of Pixar's like uh, our story page, which uh, goes into some history. Um, I guess the graphics group was a division of the computer division at Lucasfilm. Of course, the computer division. Uh, I guess they they say they say that George Lucas himself recruited Ed Catmull. I'm sure a lot of people know his name. He's one of the three founders uh, of Pixar, right? Uh, to run the computer division at Lucasfilm, uh, and then the graphics group came out of that. This is so George Lucas, though. Uh, on the Pixar page, they list George Lucas's wish list for the computer division. What he wanted was nonlinear editing systems for. Uh, I'm sorry, digital nonlinear editing systems for film and sound. Uh, a laser film printer, explorations of computer graphics. Like he just wanted shit for what he was doing. That's like, well, but my, I mean, yeah, that's why you do R and D, right? That's in my this case. My, well, of course, but it's just like I, I don't know. Lucas is such a weird figure with a strange and interesting body of work, but like all he has ever done really is just want, is execute R and D for the weird ideas he wants to implement in his films. I mean, that's that's but that's I mean, I know that's everybody, but that's, it's like it's it's more he is just such on on such an extreme tech end of that. I, so I, I, my question, my question is, well, first off, he, he that's the way film works. Well, I know that. Like, I, that's me, the way film has I'm, always I'm worked. Not, I'm, like, I don't think I'm, well, I'm not explaining myself very well here. It's more like a lot of people would argue that he kind of lost the soul of filmmaking in the pursuit of like technical ability. Like this is kind of oh, exemplified yeah. in the, in the Phantom Menace era like news reports about like, look what he can do now. He can take two different actors performances from two different takes and mash them together and, and just edit it exactly like he wants. And like a lot of people saw that sort of like the death of, of, of like 
you know, like artistic using, filmmaking or, using, or, you know what use, I mean? Using machine learning to yes, generate a, yes. uh, like that's what I'm, a that's what I'm, sample of a dead. Yeah. That's what some, I'm trying to yeah. get at is like sometimes the, the technical abilities get out in front of the artistic process. Uh, as George, as Steven Spielberg, uh, or, or I guess Michael Crichton famously said, uh, sometimes we're too busy wondering if we can mm-hmm. to stop mm-hmm. and think about yes. whether we should. Yes. Yes. That's Paraphrase. That's the thing. Anyway. Um, the graphics group was conceived to do all that stuff, but then they started getting more and more into digital animation, uh, recruited a bunch more animators and so forth, so on and so forth. I didn't know the stained glass night sequence from young Sherlock Holmes was made in 1985. Yeah. I had no uh, idea. I thought that was way later than that. Like that's super famous as like, well, it's the their first? first thing, right? I don't know if it was it the first, it was not the first computer graphics in anything, but it was Pixar's first, though, I believe. I guess so. Or the like, thing that would become Pixar. Like that sequence is. Okay. This article defines it as the first all CG character. Which I guess is true. Like that is a that is a full yeah, CG character in. in it's, a CG, you know, it's a CG. I don't know that I necessarily remember that, but. Composited into uh, composited into film. Um. Um, Eat it, George Arbings. Yeah, go to hell. Uh, Anyway, anyway, that's a very famous effects sequence. Anyway, Steve Jobs bought that group in 1986, renamed it to Pixar. Then it became them free. Yes. Then it became what it became. Interesting. Lots of weird stuff came out of Lucasfilm. Photoshop. Yeah, John Knoll. John Knoll did some weird science at Photoshop at at Lucasfilm that became Photoshop. Yes. Um, I I feel like, and this is a thing that I've always heard people in effects industry say, but I don't know if it's actually true that the death star, like the little dot graphic of the death star Mm. in star Wars, uh, where they're, where they're talking about how they're going to attack it. And it zooms in and shows the trench. Yeah. I think that's the first computer generated graphic that was used in a film. I've heard similar things. Yeah. Uh, um, Sierra online. Hang on. I'm just gonna throw this out there. <laughs> if anybody at Lucasfilm listens to this podcast, John Knoll is like a top 10 fantasy guest wish list for this oh. podcast. I would, I would, I would kill to talk to that guy for an hour. Okay. I, yeah, I, I is would, it, is it shameless? Would be good. Is it shameless no. to say that on this podcast? No, this is, this is a, this is the place to get it out he, there. He, he seems like an incredibly smart and interesting uh, Jim Cameron said that he has the mind of a child and the brain of a scientist. That's that's a very James Cameron thing to say. Yeah, I saw I saw Kathleen Kennedy say something about Noel that was much more kind. I would say like a a much kinder version of that. Oh, I think I don't think Jim Cameron meant that unkindly. I think that's a high compliment uh, yeah, but in his world. James Cameron. Yes, exactly. <laughs> that's what I mean. That is that's yeah. what passes for a compliment from Cameron. Well, yeah. I mean, he, so if you don't know, John Knoll is a visual effects director who also has done a ton of other stuff and is like, there's a reason he's credited on Photoshop uh, and it's because he did a ton of work on it in the early, early, early days at Lucas. But also one of the, the top people at ILM for a very long time. So like he's yeah. done enormous amounts of, of visual effects work and innovation over the years. Yeah. He, he, uh, I, yeah. Anyway, um, I've, Sierra, I've watched a lot of behind the scenes featurettes. You, that's, that's all I'm trying to say. Uh, Sierra online. Sierra Online was founded as Online Systems. It's a bad in, name. In 1979. I mean, dude, we just talked about 70s, 70s computer company names. 
are all ridiculous. Did they, did they hyphenate online yes. at that point yes. too? On, what the heck? On dash line systems. Well, I mean, what did the term online mean back then? Like that was, that sounded mm-hmm. fancy and, and futuristic, right? Well, with the hyphen though, it seems bad. It seems like you have to get in line to go That's, do something fun. Like it, it took some time for the hyphen to fall out. Anyway, uh, I don't know if people know like the kind of basic story of Ken and Roberta Williams were a husband and wife team that started Sierra the company that's kind of credited with inventing the graphical adventure yeah on pc um but Ken was kind of the business guy and roberto well, was the yeah, writer like everything i've read about this and i was actually just reading this big long vice feature on sierra recently so i got some of this from there but like ken williams very much comes off as just mostly a businessman who was also a programmer who wanted to run a successful profitable business and wasn't really thinking about video games okay uh, like he wanted to, he left IBM and wanted to just write business software uh, under his company. But um, his wife, Roberta, played some text adventures at the time and like fell in love with them and then started kind of getting him to help her out in trying to make a game. Wow. And then they figured out that they could use very rudimentary graphics in their first game, Mystery House, which I tried to figure this out. Seems to be the first graphical adventure ever. Oh, wow. Like, I, I, you tell me there might have been something. I don't, I don't know anything, anything before. So, it's, like, it's, so this was just like flat images with text was, underneath? Yeah. So I had spent too much time reading about it, as I always do. But um, she drew, they, they bought some package that could like overlay line, line, computer line art on like scanned images. So she drew, hand drew all the scenes from the game. And then he used that software to convert those into like very simple line art images. Wow. But they were too big to fit on the floppy disk, the five and a quarter disks they were going to sell the game on. So he wrote, um, he wrote basically an inter- like a, a, a coordinate interpreter so they could store the images just as coordinates that would draw the lines in on the fly as they were rendered on the Apple II. As vectors? Yes, as vectors. That's a trip. And to, to fit them all on the floppy disk. Um, Holy cow. And they, yeah. And then they sold enough copies that it became a real company. And then Sierra became one of the biggest deals on the PC for a very long time. Wow. That's funny. I love I Sierra played, games. I was a Sierra game guy. Were you? Yeah. I was like, a, oh, like interesting. a Tex Murphy and, and Phantasmagoria and Gabriel Knight, maybe. That was Knight. a Sierra one. Yeah. Yeah. King's Quest six was the first graphical adventure I played. And then I worked backwards and played a bunch of the older ones. Oh, see, I didn't play of the King's Quest. So I didn't know. I, I was almost completely unaware that different people made video games when I was a kid. <laughs> okay. You know what I mean? Like I, 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 it wasn't until like plan files and quake and all that stuff that I was like, like conceptually became aware that there wasn't just some factory someplace where everybody was churning out, <laughs> okay. video, like working together sure. to churn out video games. Sure. Um, so like the Sierra Lucas divide was very confusing to me, even in like when I was 18. Sure. Because I didn't under, like, I didn't, I didn't understand why the Lucas games were always inscrutable. And the, the Sierra games seemed to, the puzzle seemed to be at least based in some oh, reality. Dude, I don't know about that. I mean, uh, so maybe you were better at them than I was, but as somebody who got in trouble for running up a phone bill to the, to the toll line Ouch. Sierra hint thing trying to get through the end of King's Quest six. I think oh, it was like, you, I think it was like 30 bucks to, to be fair. I think of course in the early nineties, 30, a, a $30 phone bill was car with that. definitely something to get in trouble for. Um, well, so, so I don't think it was, I was in after that. It would have been like the okay. under a killing moon and that kind of stuff when they okay. started doing the well, CD those, those were on, those were and all that. The, the Tex Murphy was a different company. That was dynamics, but it was published by Sierra. Yeah. 
wasn't it? So no, that was access. Oh, that was, that was a separate thing. Dynamics, dynamics did dynamics was the kind of like edgy adult imprint of Sierra though. Yeah. yeah. To be fair, like Sierra proper put out leisure suit Larry and police quest and some stuff like that, but yeah, they were a little more family friendly and then dynamics was doing a lot of like hard boiled detective shit and yeah. Stuff like that. Yeah. More horror, like horror stuff. Um, but, uh, what happened? What happened? I, did, why did they stop? Did they just retire? Well, real quick, I was going to say before we move on to that, um, I wonder if there's like a geographical component to that, because when I moved out here, like everybody I know that I've worked with in games from here, from California, was like full on Lucas, LucasArts in the LucasArts Sierra kind of well, divide. I mean, it was the home you're on well, home that's, turf, right? That's exactly. Well, they're yeah. both in California, though, like granted. Yeah, like Lucas, Lucas, Lucas was in California. Lucas was up in the, the North Bay. Yeah. And I forget Sierra was down south somewhere. Like all the stuff that came out of Lucas, like all the tell. I assume I, I've never actually bothered to look at this, but I assume that there's a through line from Lucas to like Telltale and. Oh, definitely. And, and, yeah. Telltale I mean, was definitely to Double Fine and like, like. Telltale was literally founded by people who worked on LucasArts Adventure yeah, Games. That's what um, I assumed. But I wonder, like, I wonder if Sierra had better distribution on the East Coast because like. I got a copy of I got a cheap copy of King's Quest six at Sam's Club when I was a kid. Yeah, that, and, so that's the thing is all of those things. Those games were available in the game store in my mall. Right. So, yeah, so, yeah that's probably why. Anyway, uh, I'll put the vice feature I mentioned in the show notes here because it's all about how they sold the company to a giant corporation that apparently was being run by scam artists. Oh, no. Which like I didn't I did not know this history about Sierra. All I knew was that they sold. And they're, you know, the brand is owned by Activision now. Um, yeah, it went through like Activision and Vivendi. It was Vivendi before it went to Activision. It was part right? of Vivendi. It was part of a company called Sendent. Like I didn't know that lineage other than that they got bought by a big company and then got passed around like that. But it, it's always trippy. But you forget that like Half-Life was a Sierra game. Totally. Yes. Half-Life was yeah. published by Sierra, but that was yeah. after they sold it. That was yeah, when it was course. part of. But the thing I didn't know is that the original corporation they sold Sierra to was apparently cooking its books. This was in the late nineties. This was like, right. This was running up to the Bernie Madoff Enron era. Remember that? Oh yeah. So, uh, <laughs> apparently the, the corporation that bought them was cooking its books. The two people who ran that corporation ended up spending like a decade in prison for securities fraud. Jesus. Uh, they mishandled Sierra badly. And yeah, it's a really interesting article. Um, also a lot of the people at Sierra lost a lot of money. I'm sure because they all own shares in the company and then the company went completely to shit once it was bought by this company and they all like, like people were banking on that being their retirement or, you know, that sucks. That's awful. People, people lost their houses, stuff like that. It's pretty rough. Um, well, on that happy note, let's talk about space. I like space. The, in 1979, the uh, Voyager one probe oh. made its closest approach to Jupiter a couple hundred, a hundred thousand kilometers away, 177,000 kilometers away. Okay. Uh, found out that Jupiter had rings, had a ring has a ring. So is ring ed. Maybe this has changed, but I guess those could not be observed through telescopes at the time. We can't see them still here. Still to this I day. Mean, I don't know. Maybe with like the space telescopes or the big giant arrays sure. or something, but sure. It's, it's a very faint, like right around the equator is my understanding. Pretty close. Okay. 
Um, um, Pioneer One also uh, cruised 13,000 miles away from Saturn. Yeah, that was the first spacecraft to visit Saturn. 13,000 yeah. miles, pretty close. 13,000 miles in terms of space, real close, I would um, say. I was reading randomly. I didn't realize this, that the that Saturn's, maybe, this probably goes for every ring system, but Saturn's ring system has a shelf life. Yeah, they, is, uh, yeah. why is that, Brad? It's, well, they just decay. Like, I think the, the material just, you know, I don't know if it's pulled into pulled down to, down to the planet or what I just it's it's due to the material dispersing in some way my understanding is you need a fair amount of um of uh of moons of satellites in order to keep them stable at all oh interesting um because they like there's a push and pull and sure like those little moons on Saturn that live inside the rings basically are what makes the rings have variation is is oh. the current theory interesting yeah the thing I read said that they they expect the rings Saturn's rings will be gone within 100 million years Oh crap! I better go see him now. Then I think that's very interesting. I think I like that. Like that's a blink in cosmological time. That is nothing. Yes, the permanence of our world is uh, is small, is yes. low. Yep. I lost my show notes here. There we go. I have too many tabs open, Brad. Um, Pluto crossed Neptune's orbit for the first time since mm-hmm. its discovery. So it was discovered. Uh, it was discovered in the twenties or thirties. I can't remember. It was yeah. discovered earlier in the in the 20th century. Um, on February 7th, it, it became the eighth planet. February 11th, February 7th, 1979. For the next 20 years, it was the eighth planet for most oh. of. Yeah. Oh, I thought that was just like a brief crossing. I didn't realize they just straight up swapped places for well, it is two, a brief two, crossing. Two decades. Well, yes. Pluto yes. takes a long time to orbit, it turns out. Yes. Um, so, yeah, it'll be that for like another 200 years or something at this point. We won't see Pluto be the eighth planet ever again, actually, because. Well, got, because it's not a planet. I guess I've got Sorry. bad news for people. Pluto's not a planet. Oh, crap. Uh, also, the first space shuttle was delivered to Florida. Mm. Space shuttle Columbia. I mean, oh. I guess actually the the Enterprise was um, probably didn't go to Florida. I guess it was they flew it in the desert, I guess. Columbia was one of the was the second disaster, right? Columbia was the second disaster. Yes. Uh, uh, do you know how many there were? Space shuttles? Yeah. Five Columbia Challenger Atlantis Discovery uh, Discovery Atlantis Endeavor five plus Enterprise. And what what was the deal with Enterprise? Sorry, Enterprise was a flight bed flight a test flight test bed for the glide path stuff. So it never actually Enterprise they put up on the back of the seven forty seven and flew it up into the air and and then cut it loose to see if they could control it. Okay, but it Um, never actually never actually went to space. Went to okay. So there was there was talk that it would go to space. But they ended up not doing it because it was easier to just cheaper to just build a new one than to retrofit that one with what they learned from the ah, test program. That makes sense. Uh, uh, so Enterprise is in I can't remember where Enterprise is. Maybe it's in Houston. Um, Discovery is in uh, which is the oldest orbiter. Well, Enterprise is the oldest, but Discovery is the oldest one that's been to space. Is at the Air and Space Museum at Udvar-Hazy at Dulles Airport in D- outside DC. I would like to see that. Uh, Endeavor is down south. Uh, in LA. Do you know if any of the museums let you go in them in any capacity? No, Probably you cannot not. go in. Yeah, that's what I, that's what I figured there. Um, we talked about that when we went to, um, Houston, I, I don't think it was on video, but the, the, the curators, like they, they go in and they even limit access to like cameras and stuff like that. Oh, like there's incredibly limited access to the insides of, of this, of these types of exhibits because they don't want them to degrade. And anytime you put people in there, they're going to generate dust and stuff like that. That's fair. That's fair. 
So that one the one thing that they did do with Discovery, and I think all three of them actually before they put them on display, was they took uh, gigapixel cameras into the cockpit, and there are gigapixel images of the entire cockpit, all the cabin area, all the living area, all that. Oh, that's stuff. cool. That's cool. Um, which is pretty cool. Yeah. One real quick note about Pluto before we move on that I want yes. to throw out. Um, you got Pluto facts. Know, here's a Pluto fact. You made. A, I don't know if you know this. Or you you probably know this that that. Um, Pluto crossing Neptune's orbit is one of the reasons it's not a planet anymore, not classified as a planet. What? Anymore. That was that's one of the criteria that they came up with. That's what made it special. There's only one planet that did that. Well, it seems like they're just. Ex- it's not Brad, a planet. We learned, it's not we a planet. learned a lot. We learned a lot about bullying they, uh, as parents. Now. I'm sure I get it. Look, I, I think those scientists hey, bullied Pluto, Brad. That's what I'm saying. Dwarf planets are special, too. Wow. OK, they gave them a special name. That's that's always bad. Pluto, Pluto is Pluto went from the smallest planet to the most famous dwarf planet uh, what, what about series and um eros are the other ones uh series you know, you, and you, that's, not, that's not eros is it what is something like that i think there there are potentially a lot of them in that class in our solar system uh-huh. that are unknown yeah what is it um oh we don't have to get into it but but uh to be a planet the object has to have cleared its own orbit is one of the criteria they came up with wow it, it can't it can't have any other similar objects crossing over no justice for Pluto. Yeah. Uh, you know, what was fun is they, uh, 1979 is the first time that they televised all 500 miles of a NASCAR race of a first televised 500 mile race. So, uh, they televised the Daytona 500 for the very first time. And, uh, that sure. I, I, can, I think I, is, hmm? I can tell you having grown up in a NASCAR house, that is a long television program. It is a lot of, it, that's, like, that's a whole day, that, like six hours or something. I don't know. It takes, they drive 200 miles an hour. It shouldn't be that long, but for whatever reason, it takes a long time. Um, I think, I think this is interesting because this was a technological problem, like being able to run broadcasts for that long and mix the video from the, that size of a track and stuff like that was, I I assume something they couldn't do up until that point. So, um, big deal for, big deal for sporting events, live events. Yeah, well, like that and golf. It turns out doing golf tournaments usually weren't live, so doing it live was a was a being able to do it live was a, is is important. Probably a lot of listening to the radio before that. I would assume so. Yeah. yeah, and probably the radio guy wasn't even there. He was just getting told what was happening by somebody else. Yeah. Um, and then the last one, mm-hmm. Star Trek: The Motion Picture Go premiered on. at the Smithsonian Institute. That's in cool. December. I didn't know that's where it premiered. I've never seen it. Someone with the bald lady. Yes, I'm I'm familiar, but yeah, it's pretty. It's V'ger? the costumes are really weird, right? That's that's V'ger, isn't it? V'ger. Yeah, it's yes. basically it's basically the same story as Voyage Home, but without the whales. <laughs> okay, I want to see it at some point. I would like to get Wait. my hands. What? What? I just said I have not seen it. What? Brad. What? I thought you were a Trek fan. You're a TNG yeah, guy. Well, yeah, I'm only kind of a selective. Wow. There's a lot of that. I, there's a lot that I have not seen. It has a transporter. It shows a transporter malfunction. I've heard. I've heard it's hor- horrifying. It's it's scarred me for a like, really long time. I've, I've read about the movie a bit recently, and now I really want to watch it because my impression of it is that they tried to make 2001. They were trying to make a good movie instead of a Star Trek movie. What I've read about it is that it has a lot of like a lot of really languid shots of starships and space and stuff like that. And like, yeah, it's going for that dreamy Kubrick kind of quality. There's a lot of sounds like a weird mess. It's it's a it yeah like there's a there's an opening sequence they do this a couple times later on in the movies but there's an opening sequence where they fly a shuttle around and it's just like model porn like yeah, like exactly. spaceship That's, model okay. porn I do yeah. I need to see that that sounds that sounds pretty good 
Yeah. I feel like there's a left-handed spanner joke, which I can always appreciate. Mm. So yeah, pretty, pretty good stuff all around. Um, it's not a good movie. I mm. think Voyage Home is the, is the superior of the giant spaceship coming to destroy us all. Okay. Star Treks. Sure. I wonder which of the six holds up the best these days of the six, not TNG movies. Yeah. Undiscovered country. Probably I, I, that's, that was going to be my guess actually. Like yeah. I, I know, I know wrath of Khan is the go-to answer for everybody, but like, and I mean, I, I'm sure wrath of Khan is still great, but like, it's got a certain camp quality to it. Right. It's the ear thing. There's body heart. Like they're yes. still like, like it's like they looked at star Wars and they were like, Hey, there's, they have spaceship. Okay. we got spaceships. They have, camaraderie we got camaraderie we they got weird aliens okay we're gonna jam something in Chekhov's ear done perfect i i um, feel i remember undiscovered country having some like really good political intrigue yeah it's all about the klingons and bombs and spies and stuff i, right. I yeah i don't know i undiscovered country i i i hadn't watched it until fairly recently when i watched it, i was pleasantly surprised oh, so wow i should go back i haven't seen it since since it came out i should go yeah. check that out on, on the, probably a bazillion streaming services or um whatever the cbs app is hey, you know what Big shout out to the San Francisco public library system. They have got a bajillion Blu-rays. There you go. That works too. They've got all kinds of stuff. They should set up a Plex server. Hmm. Uh, On that note, I think we should call it a day. Okay. Happy, happy birthday, Brad. Call it a year. year. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, If you like these episodes, please let us know either on Twitter or on the, on the discord. Either one is, is great. Yeah. We would love to like genuinely would love to hear. We have batted around the idea in one form or another of maybe just doing this with other years. So as a, as a semi-regular recurring feature, not like not monthly, but not, no, definitely not monthly, but maybe a a handful of times a year or something like that. Just pick a year. Yeah. Uh, Um, You can do some newer ones. Yeah. And if you want to talk to other people about stuff like the things that we discussed today, the tech pod discord is a fabulous place to do it, which you can get access to by joining the fabulous tech pod, Patreon at patreon.com slash tech pod. It's two bucks a month to get in the discord for now, for now, dun, 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 for now and some indeterminate time in the future. <laughs> we keep, we're busy. It turns out it's, it's challenging to think of new things. So anyway, yeah. you all continue to benefit. Uh, the TechPod Discord, uh, there's a bazillion channels. We talk about interesting stuff all day long. Like this week was, you said it was Steam Deck week for like Thursday and Friday. I, I went, I was at basketball. I was, my, my daughter has went to basketball camp this week and I was there watching her play basketball and my Twitter started popping off with people asking what I thought about this new Steam thing. And I looked at it and I was like, Oh man, Valve's going to sue these people for using ah. the word Steam in a video game context because it didn't look like a Valve page. You're behind the curve. Yeah, I know. Um, but yeah, uh, people are always talking about cool stuff. Yes, it's a great it's a great place to get the straight scoop on stuff, like or the the, the nitty gritty. Both the straight scoop, then the nitty gritty. Well, like the like when the Steam Deck was announced, like people immediately started going out and finding equivalent AMD APUs that are out there, so you could kind of start seeing some benchmarks and like actual you know. Real world info on for reality on, on how yeah. powerful it is. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and as always, thank you to our executive producer to your patrons, Andrew Slowski, the bunny fiend, Jacob Chapel, Joe, Kra- Joel Krauska, Twinkle Twinkie, David Allen and James Kamek. Thank you yeah. guys all so much. Thank we you very much. You. Very, very much. Uh, and again, it's it's patreon.com slash checkpot. If you can't subscribe to the Patreon, that's fine. You know, tell some friends. Yeah. Do a tweet. Spread the word. Let, let us know what you think. Just listen to the show. Yeah, listen. To the, yeah, keep listening. Leave an iTunes review. Oh, yeah. iTunes, iTunes reviews are great. Our iTunes reviews are really, really pleasant. I always love checking it out. It's nice to see what people think. Yeah. 
Um, so anyway, thank you all so much. Have a lovely, lovely week, Mr. Shoemaker. Thank I hope you. Same to you. The festival of Brad uh, <laughs> is. I'm not, you may, it may not surprise you to hear I'm not big on making a big deal out of my birthday. Well, I'm going to make a big deal out of your birthday then. Well, thank you. The festival of Brad will live on. Uh, I hope you have a wonderful time and eat some cake and thank you so much. Do some good stuff. Um, we will see you all next week. Mm-hmm.